It is good as always to be with you. I love uh, spending time with the young adults group. Um, we are going to be tonight in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 16. If you do have your Bibles, you can open to that. If you use a Bible app, you can turn to that. It doesn't really matter which uh, version you turn to. Uh, we, I will be using the ESV, but um, that is the text that we'll be in today. So let me just uh, open our time in the word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for each individual that is here. Thank you that we can come together and open your word and study it and learn from it and grow by it. God, we are just uh, truly blessed to be able to do this in a setting that we don't have to worry about um, our physical safety, but we have freedoms that we're able to come together and fellowship and worship and learn and grow from your word. And God, I pray that we would never take that for granted, that we would just continue to uh, spend time with you, seeking you with all of our hearts. God, I pray that my words would not be my own, but I would speak uh, as you would have me. And if I speak amiss in any way, I just pray that you would give my friends here the wisdom to omit uh, those things that I may speak in error. And God, I do pray that uh, you would bless our time, and uh, as we open your word, may you receive all the glory for it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you've ever been to a carnival and played some of those cheesy games, there's a game that you take a ping pong ball and you throw it into a small glass jar that contains a goldfish. And the lucky winner walks away with a plastic bag and a goldfish looking at them wondering, what am I going to do with this thing? Well, if you're like most people, you take that goldfish and you bring it home and you find some Tupperware in the bottom recesses of your cupboards and you fill it with RO water because it's probably better for goldfish, right? And you see how long it will last on Ritz cracker crumbs and whatever else you can throw at it for the time being. The interesting thing about goldfish is that their growth is in direct proportion to the environment that they're in. So while they're in their Tupperware container on your kitchen counter, or if they're in a small aquarium... They're only going to grow to be about one or two inches. They're going to stay roughly the same size, although technically goldfish never stop growing. But out in the wild, if they're in a lake or if they're in a pond or some other large environment, a goldfish can grow up to 16 inches long. 16 inches, that's like a freak of nature. That's like the things of you know, nuclear sites, right? So goldfish... Their growth is in direct proportion to their environment. Pollution is also something that will stunt the, the growth of a goldfish as well. Environment is critically important. Paul is talking about something very similar tonight as he gets into Ephesians chapter 4. The environment with which we as believers are in can have a tremendous impact on how much we grow spiritually. It can have a huge impact how much tainting we have of the things of this world based on how much we grow. And as we look at our text today in Ephesians 4, I want to just start before we get into that text about talking about a little bit of context because anytime we open God's word, it's very helpful, I would say it's even necessary for us to know the context with which the author is speaking so that we can rightly understand it with uh, the intent that the author had as, as it was written. So the book of Ephesians is primarily split into two sections. Chapters 1 through 3 is a doctrinal section, and chapters 4 through 6 is a practical section. 
So in chapters 1 through 3, it explains who we are in Christ. And in chapters 4 through 6, it explains how we are to live in Christ. We see this order not only here, but in many of the didactic books of the New Testament. That is, books that teach, books that we learn from, books that instruct in some ways. And this order is present in so many of these books where orthodoxy, that is, right doctrine, always has to come before orthopraxy, which is right practice. Now this word ortho literally means to align or to straighten. So you might think of the familiar term orthodontics. Some of you might be the product of an orthodontist's work where they aligned or straightened your teeth. But here we're seeing orthodoxy, the aligning of our right beliefs so that we can properly align our lives according to God's will. God's word precedented this order because it can be disastrous if we flipped it around. If we did, it might look something like this. I am going to start by choosing to live however I want to. I'm going to choose whatever actions feel right and most beneficial and most pleasurable to me, myself. And then I'm going to reverse engineer all of my beliefs into doctrines that just enable the behaviors that I pre-decided I want to live by. You can see how big of a problem that that would be. Paul actually referred to this in other spots as twisting the scriptures. We're contorting the scriptures to fit how I want to live. He also says that this can be like people accumulating for themselves teachers who just tell them what their itching ears want to hear. Well, I'm just going to surround myself with some of these people that just kind of say, yeah, Stephen, pat you on the back for all the, the living however you would like to. It's accumulating wrong teachers. Today, we sometimes hear theologians refer to this as the contrast between exegesis and eisegesis. Now, those kind of sound like big theological terms. They're not really that complicated at all. If you take the, the prefix ex, that means out of. So you think of the exit. You go out of those doors as you exit the, the room or the building. You also think of the word extract. If you guys are like juicers and you put in some carrots and you know, fruits and veggies, it will extract or take out of uh, that particular uh, item of produce. It will extract the juice. So from a theological standpoint, exegesis means taking the text, taking God's word, and pulling from it what God intended for it to say. We're taking what the Bible already instructs, the doctrine of the Bible, and we're pulling from that what God wants us to learn. That's the uh, doctrinal aspect of studying God's word. Eisegesis would be the opposite of that, and that's what God doesn't want us to do. And that is where we are actually putting meaning into the text. We're taking our preconceived desires and suppositions, and we're trying to twist the scriptures to fit our own meaning back into the text. To put it another way, exegesis allows us to agree with what the Bible already says, whereas eisegesis seeks to force the Bible to agree with us. Sadly, we see a lot of this happening in society today. If people happen to be paying attention to the Bible at all, we see a lot of times where the Bible is taken out of context. We see scriptures lifted out of context and used in a way to maybe um, 
you know, enable some sort of sin or another so that people can uh, feel a little bit uh, soothed in their conscience about some of the decisions that they're making. One of my least favorite is judge not lest you be judged. In other words, I'm going to live however I want and if you're going to judge me, then you better watch your own back. It's, it's sort of this uh, tit-for-tat sort of mentality that completely lifts that uh, text out of context. But it's for these reasons that we see the book of Ephesians structured this way, and it's so important that we see this doctrine first and then practice. So at the very beginning of chapter 4, in this uh, section that starts the practical aspect, the put it into practice section, Paul uses the word therefore. And the word therefore always refers to something preceding it. Another way, to say, another way to say therefore is to say because of this. And that, because, and that begs the question, because of what? So what Paul is essentially saying is because of everything that we just talked about from a doctrinal standpoint about who we are in Christ and about everything that we understand about God and his plan for our lives, now we can rightly understand how to apply it and put it into practice and take that into our lives and display that for his glory. Now as we look at this, uh, there's a transitionary portion at the very end of chapter 3. And during that transitionary portion of Ephesians, we're seeing that Paul is essentially giving us this take-the-hill promise of God's faithfulness and his power being able to take what we've learned and apply it to our lives. In other words, it's not up to me where I just grit my teeth and figure it out and I can really do this. It's Paul giving us the promise that, you know what, God is going to be with you. He's able to do what you can't. Let me just give you a couple of um, the sentences starting in verse 3, um, in, in chapter 3, verse 16. It says, according to the riches of his glory, that he may grant you the, uh, to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inmost being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And then uh, toward the end of that, it says, and, and to know that the love of Christ surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. So you see, so much of God's presence, God's spirit, God's fullness, God's power is coming upon us and in us to enable us to take everything that we've learned doctrinally and to apply it to our lives. And in verse 20, I love verse 20, it says, Now to him who is able to do far more, some versions say infinitely more, than all that we can ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us. And that power is his spirit, right? To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. So this is the promise that Paul gives. So as we get into chapter 4, the put it in the practice section, we know from the get-go that we do that empowered by God's Spirit. And that's a pretty great promise. So as we look at chapter 4, the big idea that we're looking at is the idea of uh, living life in a worthy manner. And Paul's going to flesh this out a little further and say living life in a worthy manner consists of continuing to mature in our relationship with Christ, moving on from sort of spiritual childhood. And he's also going to talk about the fact that we're going to be more and more and more filled to full with the presence of God. We're being filled with the fullness of God in our life. This is a continual process called sanctification, but this is part of what Paul is laying out as the big idea in this text. 
All the rest of what he says in this chapter supports this one big idea. And if you think about um, almost an analogy of this, think about a three-legged stool. I don't think this, this has four legs, but one leg but three feet. Most stools, I tried to bring a stool here, but it's really hard to find a three-legged stool. They all have four legs nowadays. There must have been a lawsuit out there somewhere. Yeah, right. <laughs> so if you think of a three-legged stool, think of the seat, the main component of the stool as the idea that we are um, living a worthy life, that we're maturing in Christ, and we're being filled with the fullness of God. That's the main platform. But then supporting this are these three legs of the stool that are helping us to grow and support this. These are three pillars in every one of our lives that we're going to be talking about tonight. The first uh, pillar that we're going to talk about these legs is unity, having a unified group of believers. The body of Christ is unified, unity among believers. The second leg that we're going to talk about is our use of spiritual gifts. How do we take what God has entrusted to us as a spiritual gift for his glory and for the furthering of our own lives and also for the body of Christ as a whole. And then third is rightly understanding and applying God's word. We talked about that a little bit already. What's also important for us to know is that just like the legs of a stool, each one of these components are interconnected. And if they're not, you have this stool that's sort of wobbly, right? It's not totally supported well. And what happens with the wobbly stool is the more the time goes on, it doesn't start to get more stable. It actually tends to get more wobbly. So we're also going to talk about why it's so important that each one of these three legs is interconnected one with another. So let's get in, into our text in chapter 4. We're going to just start at looking at the big picture, the, the, uh, the seat of the stool. This is in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, Paul was literally a prisoner when he was writing this, I urge you to walk in a worthy manner of the calling with which you have been called. Again, big idea, seat of the stool. Walk in a worthy manner. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. So Paul gives these characteristics in these first two verses that somehow might remind us of even the uh, fruit of the Spirit. And what Paul is saying here is that walking in a worthy manner, it always starts with my heart. It starts with my life. I have to hold up a mirror to my own spiritual walk and ask myself, am I at a place where I truly want to walk in a worthy manner? Do I desire to follow Jesus over other desires in my life? Am I somebody that wants to continue to progress toward maturity in my walk? Am I committed to making him look glorious in all aspects of my life, no matter who I'm talking to or what situation I'm in. And given those uh, modifiers that Paul put out there, it's also good for me to ask myself, am I living a life that's marked by humility? Am I being a patient person? Am I gentle? Am I interacting with other people in love? This has to start with me because if I'm not in a spot where I'm doing those things, then there's no way I can be unified with the body of Christ. That stool leg doesn't work because if I'm serving myself first, I can't be serving other people. I can't be unified with other people when I'm being narcissistic. And I certainly can't use my spiritual gifts well and expect that to be blessed by the Lord if I'm not in a place with the Lord that's pleasing to him. 
And my heart and my life and my mind is not going to be in a place to really hear and receive the word of God and apply it well if I first am not in my own heart in a place of committing to those things. So in the next uh, four verses, in verses three through six, this is the first leg of the stool that we're going to talk about. It's the leg of unity. And in these verses, Paul says that we're eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. By the way, when we see this word unity in Scripture, it's almost always coupled with some sense of peace. You guys know that when we have unity, relational unity, that there's peace in our hearts, there's peace in our lives. That first and foremost unity that we have is a reunification with God through faith in Jesus Christ. We have, um, God has, Jesus has made peace with us through his work on the cross. So when we see this word unity, it's often coupled with the word peace. Verse four, there is one body. Now look at all the nouns that follow the word one in this section. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and is in all. Unity within the body of Christ can lead to tremendous health and kingdom effectiveness when it's present, but it can also lead to tremendous damage and dysfunction when unity is absent. Paul sees unity as so important that most of his books of the Bible mention it in some way or the other. And when it's mentioned, oftentimes it's, it's mentioned in an entire section of Scripture. He, he dedicates uh, a fair amount of that particular passage to the idea of unity. One example is from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. It says, I appeal to you by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you. Now notice what he says that we're agreeing around. We're agreeing around the name of Christ. God is not asking us to unify around every little preference and nuance in our life. It just wouldn't make sense. God has created us unique. God has created us with personalities and with differences, and that's a good thing. But in this context, what Paul is saying is it's the major doctrinal areas that we're unifying around. And that's why when you look at these verses where it talks about the ones that I asked you to pay attention to, Paul is saying it's the one faith, it's one spirit, it's one Lord, it's one God. It's these major tenets of doctrine that we're unifying around. And that's the important thing we have to keep in mind that we're unifying around those things and not feeling like we have to divide over the small things. This, of course, also ties directly to the other legs of the stool because if we're unified, then as a body of Christ, we're using our gifts to serve together. And if we're unified, we're getting into God's word and understanding that correctly because we are all immersed in the right understanding, the right doctrine, the orthodoxy of Scripture. But if we're honest, Christians will sometimes divide over things that they shouldn't divide over, don't they? In fact, churches have fractured and splinted over lines in the sand that they never should have drawn, that God would never have wanted them to draw lines in the sand on. We've taken our eyes off the, the gospel. We've taken our eyes off of major important things 
And we've placed them on lesser important things and we've put our, our flag in the ground of those things for some reason. Sometimes in the church, you have people who divide over maybe how a building is used. I think we should build. I think we should rent. I think we should remodel. I think we should use the building this way or that way. I don't like the color of this floor. I think we should carpet this. There's things that are just absolutely immaterial from a kingdom standpoint, but people divide over it. Well, I like that communicator better than that one. I like this song better than that one. I like this music style. Well, I use the ESV and you use the NASB. Oh, man, heretic. We divide over things that we should not divide over. Romans 14 is another example where these are personal conviction issues. These are not black and white issues that that God draws a line in, but sometimes we tend to. Are there Romans 14 issues in my life or in yours that we're drawing lines on that we ought not to be? What about non-essential doctrines? Well, I'm pre-trib, I'm mid-trib, I'm pre-wrath, blah, 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 you know? These are things that are good and riveting and they're important to talk about and think through and just getting God's word about. But should we divide over non-essential doctrinal issues? No, we should not. In fact, the staff of most churches, including this one, would not have 100% doctrinal alignment on every issue. And that is okay. And fortunately, this is a staff that has a high amount of grace, but also a high amount of academia among the the people who serve here, so they're able to dialogue through those things and continue to share fellowship together. If you've been alive in the last couple years, which I think most of you have, how much have we divided over political views? How much have we divided over face masks? How many churches have been run aground by these things? Like seriously, like run aground. People will even divide over what candy they like in the holidays. Oh, you're one of those candy corn people, are you? Right? Or what about those scratchy, mushy, marshmallowy peep things? Actually, you know what? You guys can go ahead and take a stand on that. Those things are just plain evil. Just leave those out. Those are, you can divide on those. That's all right. But if you guys are ever questioning how divisive that we've become, just log on sometime to a social media site. Just, just find one and find where there's a discussion on something. And people overall have become so angry and so offended. You know, people just, it doesn't seem like people just kind of live with this like simmering like frustration like constantly. It's like, what is going on? And I wish I could stand here and tell you that, wow, you know, Christians are such an exception to this and it's just really great, but it's not been my observation. In fact, it can sometimes seem that Christians are more dogmatic, more entrenched, more bombastic than maybe their non-believing counterparts. Now, certainly not the people in this room, but maybe other Christians, right? As we think about um, Christians taking a stand for, for things. God has called us to love the world. God has called us to represent him well. But some people have said, you know, Christians have become more known for what they're against than what they're for. And isn't that too bad? Isn't that kind of tragic that sometimes 
we as Christ followers, the ones that are supposed to be leading with love, leading with grace, leading with the fact that, you know, I was a sinner and now I'm saved by grace, that we become more known for what we stand against rather than what we stand for. Let me just make a little quick side comment about this whole issue of social media and online whatever. And I'm, you know, I have like this much, you know, I've got two teenagers with phones and they were just like doing all sorts of stuff. They're like, dad, look, you know, and I have like this baby face. I'm like, what is that filter thing? And all they're like sending this to their friends. I'm like, whatever. (laughs) But my advice, you guys, on, on this whole social media thing, my advice is take sensitive topics, take sensitive discussions, just take them offline. Just don't engage in it publicly at all. Just, just don't do it. Now, this doesn't mean that we're failing to take a stand or compromising. It doesn't mean any of that. All it means is that we're exercising some wisdom and we are um, preventing what could be a public slugfest that has the real potential of damaging the name of Christ. Just take it offline. So many more people have good conversations over ice cream than they do over Instagram. And we have to realize that have you ever seen a person that's been called out publicly on a position that they had and have them respond with, oh, Steve, thank you for enlightening me on your your position. Thank you for calling me out on that. I was so wrong and I've now seen the light. Your wisdom is such a blessing to me and I'm now totally in your camp. It doesn't happen. In fact, the opposite can often happen where people become more entrenched in their ideals. Why? Because you've now just started a debate in front of hundreds, maybe thousands of people and that person's pride and maybe my own pride is not going to allow me to back down and listen to anybody else because now I've got to win this now public debate. Take it offline. Don't engage in it publicly for the sake of the kingdom. James 4, uh, I'll just paraphrase, uh, one of the things he says is, do you know what causes fights? you know what causes quarrels among you, James? Sort of uh, rhetorically asks. He says, you want stuff, you desire things, you want things to go your way, and it doesn't go your way. You don't get what you want, and so you fight and you bicker and you bite one another. That's what it says in James 4. So it's me making too much about myself, me not getting my way, Things not going the way I expected or desired them to go. And so conflict ensues. And we lose aspects of unity and fellowship over those things. I believe that God wants unity, especially within his church. And I really truly feel that unless the very character of God or the truth of his word is being compromised, that we ought to be people that just simply show grace to others, and that we display humility in our lives. The next uh, section I want to talk about, the next leg of the stool, we're going to pick up in verse 7. This is about spiritual giftedness. In verse 7, it says that, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does that mean? But that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth, most likely referring to his burial and resurrection. 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things, referencing his, the session of Christ, his ascension and his rightful seat at the Father's right hand. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So again, we see the unity of faith. Unity, again, is being tied in here. Maturity, maturing in Christ and fullness of Christ. All of that is being displayed under the gifts. One of the beautiful ironies is that unity thrives among diversity. Unity thrives in diversity. You can take a church that has all sorts of different ages. You have males, you have females, you have different ethnicities, you have different socioeconomic and educational levels, you have different interests and different hobbies, different backgrounds, different stories, all of these different things, and people are coming together and they're unifying around some of these central aspects of who we are and who God says we are. These core doctrines and these core applications in life, and we're, we're unifying around those things. But one of the most creative ways that God diversifies us but brings us together is through spiritual giftedness. Now in this section, there are five offices of church leadership that are described, that Paul describes. And those five are apostle, prophet, shepherd, which is also pastor. It's the same Greek word, the poimen, and the evangelist and the teachers. Those are the five. Now, as we look at some of the church history, God primarily used the first two to establish his church, the apostles and the prophets. Now, depending on your theological position, Either one of those, most people would say the, the office of apostle is closed now in this church age. There's not apostles right now. And maybe you might also say that the office of uh, prophet is also closed. But the next three, the pastors, the teachers, and evangelists, these are the individuals who continue to function in the church age to nourish and sustain the church, to continue to grow the church that it was built on. Now, I personally believe that the first two offices are both closed during this church age, I think with the closing of the canon of Scripture, when nothing is added or taken away from it, God gives us what we, what we need for this current time. But if you disagree with that, that's okay. It's a non-essential issue that we will not break unity over. If you were to uh, survey churchgoers about why they love their church, one of the top answers that they would mention is they love their pastors. They love the teaching of the pastors and they love the church leaders. And that's really for good reason. These individuals are called by God. They live their life to the best, their best ability according to the qualifications of 1 Timothy 3 and of Titus 1. And they contribute immensely to the work that God is doing in this world. But do you guys know that pastors and ministry leaders, do you know they live under a tremendous pressure to perform? Do you know that? I mean, think about having a job where the culmination every single week feels like a job performance review. That's fun. <laughs> no matter what you're doing, if you're in children's ministry and you're running the VBS or you're 
in the youth group and you're giving the message or putting on the event, or if you're in young adults and you're the primary teacher or you're putting on the, the retreat weekend or whatever it might be, there's hundreds of eyes that are kind of looking at you, just kind of wondering like, how are they doing? You know, and there's this sort of evaluation feeling that pastors, ministry leaders always seem to, to be under in some ways. And this is compounded by the fact that we live in this, this entertainment-saturated, instant gratification-obsessed world. It's, the, it's this mindset that I want what I want, I want it now, and it better be good. And so we have this kind of, sometimes this consumerism mindset that can sadly translate to the church and the leaders of the church. But is this really how God designed it? Is this really how God wanted our mindset to be? In verse 11 of our text, it says that God gave these five roles. It gives a reason. It says, God gave these five roles so that these roles can do all the work of the ministry as much as they can before they burn out while they're being scrutinized and criticized by everybody else that's watching the show. It doesn't say that. It says God gave these five roles. It says to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. You know who the saints are? All believers in Jesus Christ. The true church, the universal church. All true believers in Christ are the saints. So the role of these five individuals and the church leaders and the pastors that you uh, see on a regular basis is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Paul says it right there in Ephesians. Imagine that there was a commander in an army and he was putting together a group of soldiers and he's training them, he's investing in them, and he's getting them ready for an important battle. And the time is upon them when the battle is coming and the soldiers kind of get together and they're like, you know what? Our commander, he's a pretty competent dude. He's got a lot more experience than we do. And quite frankly, any one of these jobs, man, he can do pretty darn well. So I think what we're going to do, fellow soldiers, let's just kind of hang out in the barracks and let's let the commander go out and do as much as he can by himself. And then when he gets back, Let's do him the favor of critiquing how he did on everything that he tried to do. Does that sound good? A good war strategy, right? It would never work. It doesn't even make sense. It doesn't work on a team. It doesn't work in a, in a military unit. It doesn't work in an orchestra. And it doesn't work in the church. God has called all of us to be equipped saints doing the work of the ministry. And that's the calling that's on my life. That's the calling that's on your life. So that's, that begs the question, what is this equipping in my life? What, what do I need in order to be engaged in ministry? Well, go back to the initial conversation we had when we started verse 4. I have to start with a mirror. I have to start with the question of, am I at a place where I'm willing to get off this sort of spiritual couch and engage with what God wants me to do? Am I willing to do that? Because it takes time, it takes effort, and it takes intentionality. Am I willing to be the hands and feet of Jesus? Am I willing to be equipped? Is my heart in a spot where I trust that God can use me and he will use me and that I'm going to you know, sort of get into the battle, so to speak? Many of you, uh, by the way, do this so well. And I see that, you know, uh, when we're here for elder meetings and I see you guys greeting and I see you guys at the 
the coffee bar and the worship team, uh, even the behind-the-scenes people, someone's got my microphone on and the batteries are still going. I mean, somebody did that, right? And the floor is clean, and, except these guys here. But, um, and, and there's so many ways that God can be glorified through the use. I'm just kidding, by the way. I, uh, and I just want to say thank you for that. Thank you for your example. Thank you for plugging in. And thank you for, um, for being so committed to serving well. But on the other hand, I just want us all to hear this, that there's not some category in the Bible of Christians that don't serve. There's not this version of Christians who are like, well, I'm kind of the uninvolved flavor of Christianity. It doesn't really exist. There's no such thing. Being a Christ follower necessarily means that we what? Follow Christ. Being a Christ follower means that we continue to abide in him, that we love the body, that we're unified. All the things that doctrinally we've been talking about is an extension of who we are in Jesus. So if you're a Christ follower, it means I do ministry. God has called me to be equipped and to be his hands and feet, to be his ambassador, and that's part of who I am. There is truly no armchair quarterbacks in the church. There ought not to be. So once we're willing, once our heart is in the right spot, God calls us then and equips us through spiritual gifting. Now this is done through the power of his spirit. And the Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 7 and 1 Peter 4, 10 and other spots that each one of us is given at least one spiritual gift. The Bible tells us, um, I'll just read in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, it says that there's a variety of gifts, again, that's diversity, but the same spirit. There is different forms of service, but the same God. So even though there's this diversity, there's unity, we're kind of pulling together. Think of a team of horses pulling together toward the same goal, all right? That's the unity that we have in using our gifts together as we fulfill the big picture that we have as we look at Scripture. And contrast all the pulling that we have together with two teams pulling against each other in tug of war. And God says, you know what? We're all on the same team, tracking in the same direction for his glory. One of the ways that we can uh, also analogize the body of Christ is through a jigsaw puzzle. If you guys have ever done a jigsaw puzzle, maybe you haven't, you're about 60 years too young, but if you've ever done a jigsaw puzzle, you'll notice that every single piece is a little bit different. It's shaped a little bit differently, and the picture on top of it, that little tiny section of the picture, is different on every single piece. But what happens, as this represents each member of the body of Christ, when each one of these pieces fit together it creates one cohesive whole, one picture of what God is doing in this world as we all fit in together. That's what it looks like when the body of Christ is serving together, using our spiritual gifts together, and, and taking the hill for what God wants to accomplish through us. But have you ever completed a 1,500 or 2,000-piece puzzle only to realize that there's like 11 pieces missing? <laughs> That's what it looks like when some believers decide to just stay in the puzzle box. You know, I, I just don't know if God can use me. I just, so many other people are just so much better at anything that I would ever do. Or I just, I don't know if anybody even wants, you know, we make excuses and we think through all the reasons why I wouldn't get involved. I mean, look at all these people. Somebody else will do it. I, 
And we talk ourselves out of serving, but meanwhile, the picture is incomplete because God said, look, wait, this has never been about you. It's never been about your ability. It's about you being faithful and willing to allow me to empower you to work through you to complete the work that I have for you. And that requires all of us to get out of the box and to put ourselves into the puzzle. So then pastors and church leaders then, you can view them as almost these puzzle masters. These are the ones who are leading and teaching and getting all the right pieces into the right spots as efficiently and effectively as possible. That's their role. Equip the saints for the work of the ministry. The last section I want to talk about, um, and I I won't spend very much time on this because we've talked about it so much, is in verses 14 and 15. It says that... um, And this uh, talks about the word. This is the final leg of our stool, the final pillar that we'll be talking about. It says that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking of the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. So the last leg of the stool is God's word. This is like the picture on the front of the puzzle box. This is, the, this is like the big idea of what we're going for. If you're trying to do a puzzle without looking at that picture on the front, it's really hard, right? And God's word is like that picture. It's like, okay, what are, we, what are we centering our life and our service and our unity and our spiritual gifts? What are we all moving toward? God's word gives us that big picture. That's the picture on the front of the puzzle box. It not only helps us identify what God has us doing, but it also helps us identify when there might have been some of the wrong puzzle pieces thrown into the, into the mix. These are those wrong doctrines, these false doctrines that really don't belong. And maybe it's even sometimes people that try to lead us astray with, with wrong thinking or wrong believing. In John 17, 17, Jesus says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So when the body of Christ is grounded in the truth of God's word, they're united in beliefs and using their uh, gifts together for united purpose. They're guarded against these harmful doctrines that can infiltrate the church in our hearts and our lives. In verse 14, um, it's God's word, not only taught corporately. Again, as you go to church and other settings like this, there's this corporate learning that happens. Today we're learning about Ephesians 4, the first part of Ephesians 4. We're learning about that corporately. But God says each individual has to also continue to look deeply into God's word so that we can have a well-rounded idea and doctrinal position of where we ought to be and how we should be applying those things. Let me just uh, wrap up with a couple really, really brief um, application points. The unity of believers, the faithful use of our spiritual gifts, and the right understanding and application of God's word. These are the three pillars, the three legs of the stool that are interconnected that spiritually, spiritual maturity and fullness of Christ are built around as we look at Ephesians 4. But it's important for us to recognize that each church and each individual are maybe a little further along. They're maybe a little more developed in some of these pillars than they are in others. And that's why for the sake of growth in all of these areas, it's really important for you and I to continuously evaluate where am I in each of these areas? How am I doing in these areas? Maybe I should ask myself, am I really a student of God's word? 
Am I really digging deep, asking the tough questions, and really mining out what God's plan and vision for my life is? Or maybe I recognize that I've been someone that kind of sits back and maybe I'm, I'm a little critical about um, other people. And maybe God is asking me to change my heart and to saying, you know what, I'm so thankful for that sister in Christ. I'm so thankful for the way that she's using her gifts. It's just amazing. And I want that to sort of prompt me to start using my gifts and to serve as well. Or maybe we've had a, a consumerism mindset about church or ministry or other things. And maybe if we see an area that we're like, oh man, that's kind of annoying or that's, that's not well done, instead of taking a, a critical mindset, maybe that's a prompting where God says, you know, that area could use a little shoring up. I have some skills, I have some ideas that can help to make that even better. So I'm going to step up, I'm going to offer some, some humble advice, I'm going to just serve in a, in a way that fills that gap because that's what God's called me to do. One of the mantras I, I've tried to live by in the church is, I can't complain about something that I'm not willing to do something about. I can't complain about something that I'm not willing to do something about. Because otherwise I'm just a noisy gong. I'm just making noise. And I'm kind of damaging unity and everything else that God wants to do. So as we do these things, as we invest in these pillars, and as we grow we see the wrap-up vision in verse 16 where Paul says, from whom the whole body, again the unity, joined and held together, again the interconnectedness, by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And that, as we all together use our gifts together, have a mindset of being unified and be committed to looking to God's word for the very doctrines and the very practices that we're unifying around, as we do that, each one of us individually and collectively will grow in our maturity, will grow closer to Jesus, and will continue to grow God's church for his glory. And that's a goal I think all of us can get behind. Would you bow with me in the word of prayer? Father, thank you so much for this time. It is just truly... Uh, a blessing and a joy to be able to look at your word in Ephesians 4. God, I wish we had uh, 10 weeks together to look at just this passage because there's so much here to talk about. But I just pray, even in this um, very brief overview of uh, this portion of Scripture, God, that um, you would be, again, glorified in the things that we learn and take away and that um, anything that you would have us do, Father, you would just give us the power through your Spirit to put that into practice. Uh, we love you, and we know that you have incredible things planned for us. Help us to not miss that adventure and to uh, continue to engage for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.